Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're closing out the year here with Your Own Voices, another episode of Invention Listener Mail. But I got to say, before we get into the emails, Robert and I were, were just talking about how we had to address probably the largest thread that's ever <laughs> happened in our uh, in our Facebook discussion group, which was people reacting to the idea of microwaving water and and saying, like, why don't they have electric kettles in the United States? Yeah, so, you know, we have a lot of international listeners, and I, I think part of it is something as mundane and everyday is heating water. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's something you don't think about. You don't think about how do they heat water in other countries, and then uh, outside the United States, you might be listening to the show, you might hear us talking about the usefulness of microwaving water to heat it up for things. Mm-hmm. And they might think, and they, apparently some people have interpreted this as being an admission that we do not have electric kettles. Mm-hmm. And uh, now, little known fact, in Tennessee, we only heat up water with a blowtorch. <laughs> um, incorrect. Uh, stop spreading uh, misinformation, Joe, about American water heating practices. But, but no, the, the, the truth of the matter is, uh, I know from my own, own standpoint, I use an electric kettle every day. Uh, it is just a you know a, a kettle with a plugs into this little stand. The stand itself plugs into the wall, mm-hmm. and I instantly get hot water, which we use around the house to make tea, uh, to make coffee. I make my coffee using an AeroPress, mm-hmm. which, as far as inventions goes, is a fabulous coffee brewing invention. I've been begging us to get advertising from them, uh, from from that company for a while. I've um, also wanted to get coffee money. Yeah. Get, if we can get Chemex as a sponsor, I think that'd be great. If you're listening, coffee companies, um, we're, we're down. Uh, yeah. You just need to reach out. Send the out. cash. <laughs> but, but anyway, I use I use hot water for that, and also for other incidental uses such as adding a little hot water to the cat's food so that it is even wetter to try and keep this desert creature from uh, drying out and dying on us. But weirdly enough, there are other times and places where I don't use the electric kettle even though it's there. Like if I need to heat up, uh, say, a honey syrup for a cocktail. Mm -hmm. For some reason, I never think to use the kettle. I always use the microwave for that. Hmm. Uh, you know, I got to say, I don't have an electric kettle, and this has made me think maybe I need to get one. Yeah. It seems like it's uh, it's a very fast way to heat up water. Hopefully very efficient too, right? I yeah, guess. and it's also great for me if I'm making coffee at the house. It's probably a day when I'm working from home. So I'll, I'll go through this ritual where I'm like, all right, I think I need some more coffee. Mm-hmm. Turn on the kettle, let it heat up. I'll work a little more while it's, work, while it's heating up, and then I'll get carried away with what I'm working on. Now the water has heated up, and now it's getting cool again, so I have to turn it on again. Mm-hmm. So second or third time, I actually remember to make coffee. Uh, if you're if you're heating up your kettle on the stove, uh, it won't stop screaming at it you. It won't stop it, screaming at you and or forgetting that it's there uh, can have uh, disastrous effects. Mm-hmm. So all, all great reasons to have an electric kettle in your life, in my opinion. Anyway, all that to say, we actually do have electric kettles here in the United States. They are, they are not something that's hard to find. Though I will say, I don't know if they're extremely popular, at least not in the way they seem to be in, like, England or in the U.K. Right. And, well, one of our listeners on the the discussion module, the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module, they chimed in, well, you know, coffee's more popular in the United States than tea is. Mm-hmm. Again, it's not to say that people don't drink tea. Lots of tea drinkers in the United States. Tea is very, you know, very popular. Um, but I don't know. Maybe that is part of it. Like, there's not, not that there's not a tea culture, but tea culture is not as predominant and all-encompassing as one would find, say, in the United Kingdom. Hmm. 
okay, have we sufficiently beaten the electric kettle, beaten it to death? Well, un- until we actually do an episode on the electric kettle and discuss where this invention came from. Uh-huh. Uh, you know what's an actually, I think, very interesting electric cooking device we could come back to is the rice cooker. Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm a big fan. Yeah, I think we've discussed that, that before as well. Uh, uh, we, we use one uh, all the time. All right. Maybe we should look at this first message from Melissa. Melissa says, hello, Invention Pod people. On a recent Stuff to Blow Your Mind listener mail special, uh, of course, that's our other podcast, Stuff to Blow Your Mind. If you're not already listening, check it out. Uh, Melissa writes, Robert seemed excited about the idea of an invention episode on knives. If somehow you find you don't have enough material already, you might be interested to mention the special knives used by medieval scribes to erase mistakes made on parchment by gently scraping it before the ink sets in. Medieval illuminations of scribes always depict them holding a pen in their right hand and a knife in their left. The knife was multifunctional and the scribe could use it to sharpen their quill, hold down the parchment, or, as I said, erase errors. Thanks, Melissa. Yeah, that's a good point. I I think the, you know, the scraping of manuscripts has definitely come up on Stuff to Blow Your Mind in the past, talking about grimoires and perhaps about um, you know unfinished works. But uh, certainly I don't think we, done, we did a deep dive into the, the tools that were used and just to the extent that the knife would be in one hand and the, uh, uh, the writing apparatus would be in the other. I don't think I knew about this. So yeah. uh, this is interesting. Yeah, this is also a great idea for a Dungeons and Dragons character. You know, they could have the the, the paint their 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 paintbrush or what have you, and uh-huh. then on the other hand, they have their special um, uh, scraping knife, which can also be used to stab cobalts. Oh, nice. Yeah. All right, here's another one, and uh, this one comes to us from Sam, and also concerns sharp objects. Sam writes, "I have to say, your episode about scissors was one of my favorites." Uh, as a sewer by trade, I have great appreciation for scissors. I gotta say, sewer here is spelled the same way sewer is. I assume th- this means not a sewer, but yeah, that yeah, that was my uh, Im- impression as well. Uh, anyway, Sam continues on to scissors as a weapon. You seem during your podcast to be stuck on somehow using the mechanical advantage of scissors when using them as a weapon, insisting that you would want the long handle, short blade style to get more force out of them. This is nuts. <laughs> How on earth are you going to actually use them like scissors as a weapon? Imagine someone coming at you, trying to cut you with a pair of scissors like that. It would not work. The reason that long tailor shear style scissors are used as movie weapons is because they are a great stabbing weapon. Other than throwing loose scissors like weird ninja stars, this is my personal uh, active shooter defense strategy dream, uh, this seems like the only practical way to use scissors as a weapon. Anyways, keep it up. One item I would be super interested in hearing the history of is the mighty Seam Ripper. Thanks, Sam. Uh, I got to admit, you're correct, Sam. Now, we I don't think we were dwelling much on, like, how to use scissors as a weapon. We were commenting on, like, use of scissors as a weapon in media, like in movies mm-hmm. and stuff, uh, and how they're always, like, those long blades. And, yeah, I guess, you know what, you're correct. They're pretty much always used for stabbing, not for shearing as right. a weapon. Uh, unless, let's see, what would be a, a, an exception to that, I think? The Exorcist 3. That's true, yeah. Uh, otherwise, you just need to be a giant crab or something to really get your, uh, your, your scissoring action on. You've clearly thought way more about using scissors as a weapon than we have. So we, uh, we give you that one. But uh, either way, uh, thank you very much, Sam. Uh, should we move on to – we got a bunch of messages about uh, the microwave. Maybe, maybe we should do that next. Yeah, yeah, since we, we, start, we started the episode off by talking a little bit about it. Now, we specifically asked uh, if anybody out there had ever tried to cook a turkey in the microwave, like those old <laughs> – 
you know, horrible uh, recipes. And boy, we heard from a few of you. So this first message comes from Sharon. Subject line, hi, my name is Sharon, and I once cooked a turkey in a microwave oven. <laughs> the year was 1987. My husband, infant son, and I were going to be moving soon, and one of my jobs was preparing meals with the contents of the fridge and freezer. I hit a roadblock in the freezer as it contained a turkey, a gift from the recent holidays. With a non-working oven, I was left with the stovetop or the microwave oven as options to cook the turkey. The microwave had been an extravagant gift from a former employer in 1982 and came with an extensive manual, which of course included directions for cooking a turkey. After an encouraging long-distance call with my mom, I prepped that turkey for the microwave. I don't recall all of the details, but I do remember being pretty excited about actually using the temperature probe that was a standard issue with microwaves of the day. Per directions, the turkey was cut up and cooked in pieces, temperature probe <laughs> inserted. I think that's a good move instead of trying to cook it whole. The end product was very tasty. Not, of course, like an oven-roasted turkey with that yummy brown skin and drippings for gravy, but definitely edible. Thanks for jogging my memory on this culinary adventure from long ago. And I do wonder now why I didn't just move the turkey across town and roast it in an oven. <laughs> Thank you for invention and stuff to blow your mind. Podcasts which make my commute painless, Sharon. Uh, that is that is exactly the kind of story I wanted to hear about the the cooking of the turkeys. Though it does raise the question, who gives a whole turkey as a gift? Like that is a strange gift because it's a production to uh, to deal with this turkey. Uh -huh. uh, you're you're basically giving somebody a project and making demands on their freezer space. It's halfway there to my favorite kind of gift, which is a really unmanageable pet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Like Merry Christmas, here's your uh, Komodo dragon. Yeah, or just, I mean, it doesn't even have to be exotic. Just to, anytime you see somebody, especially if it's like a romantic situation where perhaps the the, the bond is not completely, um, uh, you know, glued together for two individuals, for right. one to give the other a puppy, that always just seems horribly inappropriate uh, for all concerned, including the puppy. <laughs> now, we don't want to smear puppies that were given that way. No, I, I know some great puppies that were exactly in that situation. But were, but you have to, admit, have to admit, were these gifts entirely thought out? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, is the acquisition of a puppy ever entirely thought out? I guess not. I guess it's a decision you make you know, partially with your brain but also with your heart. <laughs> Okay, now strangely, we just read an email about somebody cooking a turkey in a microwave oven in 1987. Guess what our next email is about from a totally different listener? Um, well, it has to do with the turkey, but what's the year? 1987. Wow. Something was in the air. Uh, <laughs> do, do you want to read Trish or should sure. I go uh, ahead? Sure, I'll read it. Okay. Hey, guys, I love the show as well as Stuff to Blow Your Mind. I just finished the microwave series, and I have a relevant story. When I was four, my mom and I moved across the country to a new city. Our apartment was older, complete with a totally probably haunted claw-footed tub and a hulking metal beast of a microwave. Mm. The safety of the aging gas stove was questionable, but mom was totally comfortable with the microwave. <laughs> So on Thanksgiving 1987, she cooked an entire turkey in that microwave. I called her to ask, and she recalls it taking about an hour to cook. I remember it being tasty, if a little less brown than subsequent oven turkeys. In all, it's a nice childhood memory. Just thought I'd share my anecdote. Uh, cheers, Trish. Thanks, Trish. Yeah, what was going on in 87? I don't know. I mean, maybe it goes deeper. You know, these are both tales, too, of people moving, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe that was a year of new beginnings. I don't have to uh, consult the um, astrological chart on that one, right? <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, both of these cases where people were like, we have a turkey, we need to cook it, we have limited resources, we are kind of 
forced into the scenario that um, that microwave um, early microwave marketers uh, anticipated the idea that this would be your go to cooking instrument though instead of being by choice it was by circumstance and in both cases it seemed to have worked. All right, this next message comes from Scott. Scott says, When I was a young Marine back in the late 70s, I was assigned to the Computer Center at the Marine Corps Finance Center in Kansas City. This was the main administrative and financial hub for the entire Marine Corps, and we collected data from all units for reporting and record keeping. Given the state of computer tech at the time, much of that data arrived in the form of paper documents. We'd receive boxes of paper forms daily, which had to be entered into the computer system. This was achieved by scanning them via optical character recognition scanners. Whoa, in the 70s. I didn't even know that that was around back then. Um, Each page was fed under a scanning head which read the typewritten reports and turned them into a text file. The Achilles heel of any machine which has to move pieces of paper is the paper itself. And unless the paper is in pristine condition, it will jam and cause all manner of hate and discontent for the human operating the machine. Quite often, the reports we got were definitely not in pristine condition, generally because they'd absorbed humidity during transport. How is this related to the microwave episode? Well, the accepted solution for fixing feed problems was to dry out the forms by taking them down to the break room and nuking them for a few minutes in the same microwave machine everyone used for heating up their lunches. Huh. Thanks for the podcast, Scott. Well, that, that, is, that is interesting. I hadn't thought about that. We, I think we touched briefly on the idea that there are industrial uses for microwaves. I think mm-hmm. it was with lumber, right? Right, yeah. The, the, oh, that was the example of the walk-in microwave we found. Yes, yes, that uh, that made the events of um, whatever that movie was possible. It's one of the kids. Spy hard, kick ass, that's it. <laughs> Seth, our producer, just told me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, we have another microwave uh, missive here. This one comes to us from Evan. Hey, Robert and Joe, I wanted to let you know of a fascinating microwave application that you didn't mention on your recent microwave shows. It's called microwave-induced sintering and is being used in the production of metal parts using a 3D printer. That's sintering, uh, S-I-N-T-E-R-I-N-G, which mm-hmm. uh, I believe that, that word came up in our episode on the one ring on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Oh, okay. Uh, anyway, yeah, he continues. These printers use a plastic binding agent to help shape metal powder into a specific part. Yes, we definitely talked about yeah. this. In, um, gosh, which metal was it that we were talking about? Uh, uh, tungsten? Something maybe? like that? I don't know. I don't know. Go back and check out that episode if you want more sintering action. Anyway, continues. The plastic is later burned off, and the remaining metal powder is heated just enough for the metal to form metallic bonds, but not enough for the metal to become a liquid and lose its shape. This process is called sintering and is currently being done with convection ovens. The downside is that sintering can take over 12 hours to complete. But in recent years, companies are starting to come out with microwave-based ovens that can sinter these metal powder parts in 30 minutes or less. This speed increase happens because microwaves induce an electric field on the surface of each metal particle. Current then flows between the metal particles, quickly and efficiently heating that region so that the metal bonds can form. This is the same effect that makes putting bulk metal objects in the microwave dangerous. The electric field on the surface of the objects can severely shock you or burn your food, but it can be an effective way to heat metal powders to high temperatures. The technology isn't perfect just yet and may take a few more years to really make an impact in manufacturing. 
By the way, I love both of your shows and look forward to hearing them every week. Keep up the good work. Sincerely, Evan. Very interesting. Thanks, yeah, Evan. Absolutely. By the way, if you do end up possessing the one ring, do not put it in a microwave. <laughs> Horrible effects. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's look at one last message about the microwave oven. This comes from Joseph. Uh, Joseph refers back to our discussion about the irradiation of food in the microwaves episode. Uh, you know, we talked about bombardment of food items with actual ionizing radiation, unlike microwaves, uh, and how, you know, that's regularly done and is considered safe. Uh, it's both done to uh, image the food to make sure there are no, like, say, metal screws or other contaminants in it. Mm -hmm. uh, but then it's also done to sterilize food in some cases, like irradiating spices to kill microorganisms or insects or whatever. Hmm. So Joseph says, I love invention and stuff to blow your mind. I travel uh, a lot for work, and these are two of my favorite podcasts to listen to on the road. There is a food purposely irradiated that I didn't hear mentioned in part two of the microwave episodes. Uh, at least for a while, you could purchase irradiated ground beef. Hmm. The radiation would kill any living organisms, making the meat sterile. I miss being able to eat a juicy, rare hamburger safely. Oh, that's interesting. Huh. Yeah. Um, I've not seen it in a store in years. I think people were afraid to eat the meat uh, or they were afraid the meat was radioactive and it didn't sell well. Huh. Well, maybe that's going to change because enough people are playing the Fallout games to know that the glowing green meat is, is ideal. Yeah. <laughs> Always pick the glowing green meat out of your kills. Uh, th though I actually did look this up, and it looks like, yeah, there, I think there are some efforts to bring back the irradiation of, of ground meats uh, for food safety reasons. And, uh, yeah, and they, they tried it before. I think there was just, like, some consumer hesitancy about mm. it. They, they, um, they need a new adjective, I think. They need yeah. to brand it slightly differently. Shiny meat. Yeah. Shiny meat. <laughs> shined meat. Like sunshine is radiation. Ooh, shined meat, yeah. It, it has been shined. It's, it's, been, it's undergone the shining. Um, so uh, Joseph continues, on a recent toy episode, you discussed why a jack-in-the-box would keep a child fascinated. I think, at least in my own case, I used it to learn to control my startle reflex. Mm. I tried not to react when it popped. I still do a similar thing as an adult. Interesting. Yeah. Please tell me I'm not the only person who stares down at the toaster and tries not to flinch when the toast is ready. Uh, plus, watching the nichrome wire glow and watching and smelling the Maillard reactions occur are bonuses to my grown-up jack-in-the-box. I guess that's the toaster. Uh, keep those shows coming. Sincerely, Joseph. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that I stare a lot into a toaster now. I don't, I don't actually have a pop-up toaster. But I do remember having a similar experience as a kid. Like, you, you really want to see what's going on in there. There's mm -hmm. all sorts of cool, glowing uh, oh, things yeah. happen. I... I know what you're talking about, Joseph. I have stared at the heating element. I mean, like a, a resistance-based heating element is beautiful. Mm -hmm. I, I think so, at least. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I was I was talking with my mom, actually, about early memories, like what are some of your earliest memories? And she was talking about staring at a um, like a, an electric heater mm -hmm. uh, that has some sort of a heating element. And, uh, you know, it's like it's irres irresistible to behold. Uh, but she was also told, like, don't you dare touch it. It's the most dangerous thing in the world. <laughs> so that also helped the, the, the memory, like, really um, take hold in her mind. All right. Uh, should we take a quick break and then come back for more? Sounds good. Let's do it. Let's shut the door in the microwave and then come back. All right. We're back. And uh, let's talk a little bit about bubble wrap. 
Oh, this yeah. one comes to us from Matthew. Matthew says, love your show. You were talking about bubble wrap. I was in the Marine Corps returning from a deployment in 1989. Again, we're, we're in the, the 80s here. And mm-hmm. again, we have another Marine writing in. Uh, and at the and at the welcome back ceremony, all the families uh, were there, spouses, kids, etc. In a rare moment of brilliance, uh, they had rolled out large rolls of bubble wrap in sheets on the floor of the hangar to keep the kids busy. My son was only three, and that is all he remembers of the day, <laughs> popping the bubbles. He's 33 now and has been in the Marine Corps himself and returned from a deployment. I was there, and the bubble wrap is still the main feature for the kids. That's so great. So much changes while the basics never do. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much, Matthew. All right. This next message comes to us from Olivia, also about bubble wrap. I think this is in response to us talking about why it is so fun to pop the bubbles. Uh, And so Olivia says, hello, Robert and Joe. In the most recent invention episode, uh, in the last five minutes or so, y'all discussed squeeze balls, fidget spinners, and just the human inclination to be messing with stuff. I'm not aware of any research at the moment that I can point you to, but I can give some anecdotal information on the topic. I don't know if y'all plan to do an episode. This may provide some uh, background as to what to look into. So for one, these items can be categorized as stim toys or fidget toys. And within some of the friend groups I run in, they're super popular, especially within groups where a lot of us are neurodivergent, specifically having either ADHD or autism. I have ADHD myself, and I find that it can be very difficult at times to concentrate without having something to do with my hands. As this feeling can be common to the two conditions listed above, many of us turn to fidget toys as a convenient way to keep our hands busy. As a side effect of this, my neurotypical friends, those without ADHD, autism, or any other such effect, have had the chance to be exposed to these toys when they wouldn't normally, and often they find they love them and will go out and purchase their own. But if you want to see more examples of the types of toys that exist out there, I'll, uh, uh, oh, and she links a STEM selling website below. Many, many people will fidget with whatever they have, but there can be a stigma around using items specifically designed for it. Hmm. Back when fidget spinners were at the height of their popularity, there was some controversy within the neurodivergent communities about it, specifically that because of their popularity, spinners and many other toys were getting banned from classrooms. This was due to the fact that toys that are very active with lots of motion, like spinners, can work different for different kids. Neurotypical kids will tend to be more distracted by these toys instead of aided by them in concentration uh, like they like they do for neurodivergent kids. So on one hand, while these items were becoming more normalized and making them easier to get into the hands of kids who could benefit from them, they were also being banned from the environments where they would specifically be the most useful. Hmm. Anyway, the one toy that prompted me to write in is the Infinite Bubble Wrap Keychain. Uh, I'll attach a video below of someone using it. I haven't had the chance to use one myself, but some of my friends absolutely love them. While the experience isn't identical to bubble wrap proper, my friends say that it scratches the same itch tactily as the classic product. Plus, it's small and reusable, so it's always convenient. Also, I'd just like to say thanks so much for making both Invention and Stuff to Blow Your Mind. I've been listening since the first episode of Stuff from the Science Lab and have been a loyal listener since. At the time, I was in seventh grade in middle school, and now I'm a recent college grad with a degree in engineering. Oh, wow. I can honestly say that without your podcasts and a few of the other stuff podcasts, I would not be who I am today. My friends and family all poke fun how I seem to know something about everything, and that is all thanks to these podcasts. I've learned so much over the years, so seriously, thanks so much 
much for making all these. Stuff to Blow Your Mind has long been one of my favorites, and Invention has quickly become a new favorite, too. With most sincere thanks, Olivia. Oh, oh. well, that's very sweet. <laughs> my it's heart a, is melting. It's about made me tear up there. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I mean, it, it'll be uh, next month uh, in January. It'll, it will be 10 years since the first episode of uh, of a show launched titled Stuff in the Science Lab, which was uh, then rebranded into Stuff to Blow Your Mind. So, yeah, we're coming up on, for me, a, a decade of podcasting here. Yeah, I know it's been a heck of a journey for you. It's been a heck of a journey for me, the part of it that I've been here. And, um, yeah, and so thank you so much for, uh, for getting in touch, Olivia. This, is, this was wonderful. Now, uh, I loved all that she had to say, though, about fidget toys in general and mm. you know, helping some people focus, serving as a distraction to others. Yeah. Uh, I think that's very insightful. I, I know we've talked before on the show about uh, our own personal experience with things like this. Mm. Um, I think it was the episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind about um, uh, imaginative worlds and daydreaming and mm-hmm. uh, even maladaptive daydreaming. And I, I spoke how, uh, on how when I was a kid, especially, I would, I would need to have a rubber band in my hand yes, and twiddle with their rubber band, especially when I was uh, daydreaming, like mm-hmm. that it would aid in my daydreaming. It was like and, a talisman almost. Yeah, yeah. And and I was also very specific about the color. It needed to be green or red. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, I would have probably settled for orange as well, but brown and gray were not going to cut it. Uh, and, and I don't need those anymore, but I do still find myself, especially in the podcasting booth here, I need something for my hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like right now, it is a, a partially torn apart Sharpie, an orange Sharpie. And, clear, and weirdly enough, it has to be orange. Um, I, I get a little perturbed if I don't have an orange Sharpie to use. Uh, but, but ideally, I, I need to have like a squishy sandbag. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's better because if I drop it, it makes less noise. But I can definitely still at, at this point in my life – um, you know, understand the need to have something in your hand to fiddle with in order to keep your, your mind focused on something. Oh, yeah, yeah. I understand the feeling. It's it's powerful. Uh, all right, what are we looking at next here? Oh, let's see. We have one from Amy. And ooh, it looks like this one is going to mention a bubble wrap, but also a little science fiction. Uh, Amy writes, hi, Robert and Joe. I just listened to the bubble wrap episode on Red Dwarf season three, episode five, the episode Time Sliders. Rimmer goes back in time to tell his younger self to invent, quote, tension sheets, bubble wrap that is meant to be popped for its therapeutic effect because a kid he went to school with did and became wealthy. While he tells himself about it, the other kid listens, but the younger him ignores the idea. Genius. <laughs> this episode is all about photography, too, so it ties in with your recent episodes. You guys have to watch it. I enjoy invention and stuff to blow your mind. Live long and prosper. Amy. This is not the first bit of listener mail we've gotten about the show Red Dwarf, which I've never watched, but uh, it, it seems like it, it uh, dovetails with the number of things that come up on our podcasts. Yeah, I vaguely remember seeing – catching a little of it back in the days you know, on cable. I don't know if it was on Sci-Fi or maybe even on uh, one of the comedy channels, but mm-hmm. I remember catching part of it but never really getting to dive into it. I have friends who are really into it though. Uh, we also heard from a listener named Prudence who had uh, who had, had some stuff to share about bubble wrap, but I think more importantly said uh, a topic suggestion. I would love to hear the history of autopsy. Mm. Uh, that would be interesting. Get into autopsy, vivisection, uh, just sort of general anatomical uh, exploration. I, I think this may have something to do. I, I don't want to mind read Prudence, but uh, it may have something to do with our, our talk in the Caskets episodes about the needs for human cadavers in order to do medical dissections. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's got to be 
taboos that come and go about that through through history and like uh, how, how were the standard practices first created? Yeah, totally. All right, uh, let's look at an email we got about our episode on the telescope. Uh, this comes from our listener Dimitri. Dimitri says, "Hi, Robert and Joe. Uh, I was listening to Invention uh, since episode one. You announced it on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, and I love it. Finally, you touched a topic that I'm passionate about: astronomy and the telescope. So I decided to write in. First, one curious observation: up until recently, uh, 2016 to be precise, we have only seen the universe using the electro." magnetic spectrum. Different wavelengths of it, yes, but still a single type of information. But then came LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. In 2016, for the first time, we could see the world through the eyes of gravitational waves. I guess that for early telescope users like Galileo, it was similarly eye-opening. I definitely can compare this LIGO to the first telescopes coming online. By the way, all of the human senses have to do with electromagnetic force. I was trying to think for a second there, like, wait a minute, like touch and smell. But yeah, I guess uh, chemistry, you know, chemistry and physics is that's electromagnetic fields and forces. Yeah. Yeah, So, yeah. Dimitri continues, second to your discussion about the stars, I've lived in different cities my entire life and don't see many stars very often, but I photograph the night sky. Recently, I went to uh, the darkest sky place within a two-hour drive from my home with my family, and I saw the Milky Way with naked eyes. You can find the image, uh, and then uh, he links to his Instagram page to find the image with the center of the galaxy. Uh, He says, it's uh, definitely surreal to lie on your back and see all those stars. Moreover, uh, and then he links to another image, you can even see a faint spot of Andromeda, a galaxy 2.5 million light years away. Uh, This is another level of excitement that I discovered at home later. Uh, And, uh, oh boy, Andromeda's, we we got a date with destiny, end up with Andromeda in the far future, and that's going to be exciting. Yeah, uh, if you could could live long enough, that uh, image would definitely come into sharper focus for you. All right, on that note, we're going to take one more break, but we'll be right back with more invention listener mail all right we're back all right this bit of listener mail comes to us from uh, irene irene writes in about canning Uh, we did an episode dealing with this and uh, i'm I'm not going to read the entire email first part of the email is is basically irene expressing uh, how much she loves canning Mm -hmm. uh, which is all wonderful we love to hear about people's uh, enthusiasm for uh, a particular invention but then she goes on to discuss uh, our interest in canning or potential interest in canning she says i believe it was joe or maybe both of you who expressed some interest in trying your hand at canning I highly encourage you to try it. There is no more gratifying sound than that of the lid popping down when you pull the jars from the canner and they begin to cool and seal. That pop is the sound of success, and I never tire of it. I usually shout yes for each jar lid that successfully pops for me. You can improvise almost everything you need for canning except for one tool, and that's the jar lifter, a.k.a. canning tongs. There is no substitute for canning tongs, and you'll risk injury if you try to pull a hot jar out from the water with anything other than canning tongs. Uh, This comes from the horse's mouth as one who suffered a nasty burn trying to retrieve an errant jar from the boiling water using a regular pair of tongs. Don't even try. (laughs) 
Fortunately, canning tongs are very inexpensive and can be found at most grocery and discount stores. There, there is an element of danger in canning with all the hot water in the canner and usually another pot of hot syrup, brine, pureed apples, and other, and other items. With two large pots of boiling something, I've gotten burnt, cut, and nearly set wooden spoons and pot holders on fire. So the danger thing adds a little bit of fun. The pop <laughs> of the lids sealing successfully is the payoff for the heat, the work, and the danger. The real joy is giving people something delicious in a jar, especially when they don't expect it. Jump in and give it a try. Thanks again for exploring an odd topic near and dear to me. Keep up the good work and keep the episodes coming. I'm almost always listening to podcasts while I'm canning. Best regards, Irene. Um, yeah, I'm glad she brought up the, the canning tongs because I remember I, – I honestly don't remember if it was my mom or my grandma that definitely had the canning tongs around. Mm-hmm. And I guess you, if you can't picture them, you need to look them up. But they are a pair of tongs generally like sort of doubled – uh, you know, wide enough so they can grip a can. But I remember as a kid, they were really fun to play with because, you know, they're essentially this right size to grab your own arm or someone else's arm. Right. Uh, and or pick up toys in a way that uh, normal tongs, uh, you know, don't do as well. You know how much we love a tool that doubles as a toy. Yes. Especially a kind of dangerous toy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Robert, we actually had just had one come in recently that uh, I thought you might like. So do you mind if I read this one from Jeremy here? Yes, go for it. Okay. Jeremy says, I just finished your third toy episode and I wanted to let you know how much I've been enjoying your podcast. I listened since the first episode and I am a fan. Ironically enough, as you finish up this episode on toys, I am putting together a miniature of my game of choice, Age of Sigmar. Ah. I understand Robert plays 40K. I think that refers to Warhammer 40,000. 40K or right, yeah, uh, yeah. He's referring to, to to my painting of Warhammer 40,000 uh, figures, mm-hmm. and he's talking about so what was a, originally known as Warhammer or Warhammer uh, Fantasy. Uh, he says, "I understand Robert plays that, but nobody's perfect." <laughs> uh, I don't know if miniature wargaming is a topic you guys can cover on Invention or not, but I would love to hear something on it. Not only is it enjoyable for the obvious reasons, but it's phenomenal for getting into a community of like-minded people uh, that are not just into playing games. Uh, uh, but there's, it's, they're also hobbyists and in many cases amazing artists. Additionally, you find that there are some pretty famous people that enjoy the same hobby. Great examples are Peter Cushing and Robin Williams. I've never oh. heard of this. Uh, I, I didn't know about Peter Cushing being into miniature gaming. Uh-huh. Uh, I had read that Robin Williams had gotten into it possibly because one of his, uh, one of his sons uh, was interested in it at some point. Huh. Uh, but, but that's all I really knew about it. There are some other interesting – Historical figures that pop up in the history of miniature wargaming and the mm-hmm. uh, you know especially sort of the definitely the the, the pre Dungeons and Dragons era of gaming mm-hmm. and sort of like classic English gaming uh, so that would be something that could potentially be fun to discuss because you're you have a, a few different things coming together in miniature wargaming right I mean you have you have hobbyists uh, you have the the creation of miniatures you have the utilization of miniatures in either a, a strategic form that is entirely about the the, the puzzle of strategy and games of, uh, of skill and to a certain extent extent chance but then there's also the whole idea of simulating a battle scenario to some extent mm-hmm. and, uh, and and that would be something to look at as well to you know where where in the history of 
of wargaming in particular, does it tie in with actual military strategy? Oh, yeah. Well, I think we could definitely look at the history of inventions for simulating conflict. Yeah. Anyway, Jeremy continues, thanks for all your work, and I hope to hear it uh, in perpetuity. That's a strange sentence. <laughs> Does that mean forever? We have to keep going forever? I guess so. Oh, I don't know if I can do that. No uh, less for the wicked. <laughs> All right. Well, as long as we're talking about pastimes and games, we should talk a little bit about toys. Here's a listener mail we received from Steve. Robert and Joe, I thoroughly enjoyed Toys Part 1, particularly the segment on the Frisbee. It reminded me of being a kid around kindergarten age when my parents came home from Saturday grocery shopping with a brand new red Frisbee. It not only had the ridges uh, and thicker outer rim you mentioned as new features on the 1964 model, but the center was made to look like the bridge of a flying saucer, Mm. inspiring my older brother to paint the windows silver. The segment on the origins of the Frisbee also made me think of a story my dad told me when he was getting up there in years. In the late 40s and early 50s, he worked at the National Film Board of Canada in Ottawa. Oh, that's great. Hmm. I'm a a big fan of uh, the National Film Board of Canada and their their work, their various short films, uh, because I think some of them – Played. Wait, sorry, is that what Boards of Canada is named after? Yeah, yeah. The, the Musical okay. Act Boards of Canada is a is a reference to the National Film Boards of Canada. Amazing. Yeah, and and so I lived in Canada for a little bit when I was much younger, and I believe that the the, uh, the CBC station would air uh, little uh, National Film Board of Canada shorts, such mm-hmm. as one fabulous uh, piece in which you had these stop motion uh, sand creatures forming out of the sand and building mm-hmm. a sand castle. It's it's wonderful. If you, you look it up, it's it's a hosted online, as are all of the the films, I think. Uh, Anyway, uh, it continues. Uh, The office was on a bluff above the Ottawa River, and to dispose of the many empty film cans their work generated, he and his colleague would fling the tops and bottoms out of the window, Frisbee style, and try to get them to the river. (laughs) He said they mostly landed on the rocks of the bluff, but they had great fun doing it. Looking forward to part two. Uh, A little bit of lighthearted littering in the post-war period. Yeah, yeah, you know, (laughs) 40s and 50s, you know, it, uh, it was a different time. Uh-huh. <laughs> but interesting, too, about the National Film Board of Canada being around back then. I, I say I'm a, a big fan of their films, but I've never really looked too much into their history. So, so I had no idea how back it went, uh, evidently to the 40s and 50s at least. Uh, we got one message from Vivian that was actually one of a couple of messages we got about when we, we asked, hey, is anybody still making like wooden jigsaw puzzles? Vivian says, hi, Robert and Joe. In one of your toys podcasts, you were talking about puzzles. You're wondering if wooden puzzles are still being made. Um, one of you said they uh, knew about wooden puzzles for small children. Here's a link to a company in Canada who makes wooden puzzles. They are even fun for adults. I have a link to one below. And so I looked this up. This company is called Stump. Craft and uh, they make extremely elegant looking uh, artistic kind of creation puzzles. Robert, I've got an image for you here. Ooh, that looks awesome. Yeah. Some very colorful fantasy imagery with like a third eye. Uh, yeah, I'd be into that. Here's another one they got. Looks like some. Ooh, kind of like an alien uh, landscape, or I guess it's supposed to be the Badlands. Yeah. Mm. I like it. All right. We're going to go ahead and close up the mailbag with that one. But obviously, we would love to hear more from Invention listeners as we roll into the new year here and uh, consider all new inventions to visit. Inventions big, inventions small, inventions that are clearly game-changing, and inventions that also have you know, a, a, you know, a less pronounced effect on, on life, but still change the shape of human life as we know it. 
So by all means, reach out to us. Let us know what you would like to hear. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or uh, any other to suggest a topic for the future, to maybe get a uh, piece of listener mail featured in a future episode, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.